Open your Bibles with me to Malachi chapter 4. Malachi chapter 4, the last chapter of the Old Testament. If you could all reassure me right now that you would go home and by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and with the power of His Spirit, you would make greater efforts to love your spouse, love and train your children, honor and obey your parents, and love one another, we'd sing and go home. But because I'm not fully reassured, I want to spend a few minutes, I know my time, and I have my purpose is so simple, it shouldn't take that long, and that's to provoke you to working on your relationships. I want to preach to you about righteous relationships. And to introduce this subject, I would like to read to you the last two verses of the Old Testament. Malachi wrote, concluding the end of the prophets of God, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children, and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. The Lord will bless the reading of his word, because it's his gloriously inspired and preserved word, and I love it. This is a prophecy of John the Baptist, You do not need to wonder about Elijah in Malachi chapter 4 and verse 5. There's no wonder in the verse. It's very simple. Jesus said plainly that it was John the Baptist. Zechariah knew it was John the Baptist. We know it's John the Baptist. We're not waiting for Elijah. John the Baptist came before the coming, the great and dreadful day of the Lord, which was the destruction of Jerusalem. John the Baptist came and warned the people of Israel. And a great part of his ministry was going to be relationship ministry, relationship teaching, relationship preaching. He shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. Revival, revival includes as a great part of it, restored relationships. Israel had not had a prophet for several hundred years And John the Baptist burst onto the scene, and here was his ministry. Restored family relationships, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. Did he turn some children to their fathers and some fathers to their children? Yes, he did. Turn over to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. The prophecy said that he would, so we believe that he did if we didn't even have Luke chapter 1, but we do have Luke chapter 1. Here is the angel telling Zacharias, the father of John the Baptist, what his son would be like. Verse 16, And many of the children of Israel shall he turn to the Lord their God. And he shall go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah, Elias, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. A people prepared for the Lord. Do you want to be prepared for the Lord? Is your ambition to be the Lord's woman, the Lord's man, the Lord's servant? Do you know how you get prepared for the Lord? Make sure your relationships are perfect. That's a people prepared for the Lord. 
and turning people to the Lord their God is, in, includes turning them to perfect relationships. Luke 1, 16 and 17 tell us that. This is the ministry of John the Baptist. Now, I want you to notice when the Holy Ghost gives us a quote and modifies the words, we trust the Holy Ghost. Because the Holy Ghost is showing us how to interpret and giving us lessons on interpretation. In Malachi chapter 4, it said the hearts of the fathers to the children and the children to the fathers. But here we have a few words changed and they're very comforting to fathers. And they're very convicting to godly children. It says that that John the Baptist would turn the hearts of the fathers to the children in the middle of verse 17. Then it says, And this John the Baptist will turn the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. We learn several things about children and parents, fathers, because we let the Holy Ghost interpret Malachi 4, 6 for us. The disobedient are the children, and children will be disobedient. Foolishness is bound in the hearts of children. But the rod of correction, not time out, will drive it far from them. The rod of correction will drive it far from them. They're disobedient. But look what it says about fathers. And my brother, I want you to read what it says about fathers. It's the wisdom of the just. Fathers in general are described by God as just men who have wisdom. And compared to the disobedient, little, foolish, obsessed children, they most definitely do have wisdom. Do you notice that in this verse? How the Holy Ghost expands the words from Malachi 4.6 for our understanding. Fathers, godly fathers, good fathers, are just men, and they have wisdom. And children with foolishness bound in their hearts are and tend toward disobedience. I want you to come over a couple more pages to the right to look at Luke chapter 3 to see just a little bit more about John the Baptist's ministry. And here's why we're going to Luke 3. It's when, For some that would hear what I've just said, wow, the Old Testament ends with that sober warning about the destruction of Jerusalem and it wants to bring up parent-child relationships to close out the Bible? That seems kind of trite. Luke chapter 1, an angel appears to Zacharias, and when he's describing his son, John the Baptist, he describes his ministry of turning fathers to children and children to their parents. That seems kind of carnal. It doesn't sound very spiritual. What do you want to call spiritual? Being a monk and sitting in a dark corner of some monastery someplace, thumbing some beads and pretending that you're righteous? Or do you want to, like we read this morning in Psalm 15, he that walks uprightly, he that works righteousness. That's true spirituality and righteousness. And so I want you to see that when an angel is talking about this man, John the Baptist, who was born by a supernatural blessing upon Elizabeth, his ministry would be one of getting families closer together and in a godly way. And to prove that, I want to go over to Luke chapter 3 where he begins to preach and what his ministry was ba- what his ministry sounded like and looked like. Luke chapter 3 verse 10. 
He's, he's blasting away. Yes, that's the word you use when you talk about John the Baptist. He was blasting away in the first nine verses of Luke chapter 3. And we come to the 10th verse. The people asked him, saying, What shall we do then? He answered and said unto them, He that hath two coats, let him impart to him that hath none. And he that hath meat, let him do likewise. Then came also publicans to be baptized, and said unto him, Master, what shall we do? And he said unto them, Exact no more than that which is appointed you. And the soldiers likewise demanded of him, saying, And what shall we do? And he said unto them, Do violence to no man, neither accuse any falsely, and be content with your wages. That's the ministry of John the Baptist. Do you have a good picture in your mind? Do you have a good picture in your mind of the greatest in the kingdom of heaven when it came to preaching? The people say, what shall we do? He teaches them practical charity. The publicans say, what shall we do? Those are the tax collectors. Only collect what was appointed you by the Roman government. If you were a publican, what was the greatest temptation of your job? Pad the numbers a little bit. If this family owed, you know, $1,000, well, you'd, you'd write up the invoices 1100 from the Roman government. And because you had the Roman government behind you, guess what? That little citizen would pay, even though they knew you were ripping them off because of the house you lived in, the car you drove. I'm doing it for your understanding. That was the temptation. So what does Jesus say? Exact no more than that which is appointed you. Soldiers came and wanting to be baptized. What, what shall we do, master? He didn't say quit the army. He said, do violence to no man. Now Mennonites, Quakers... And others come along and grab those words and say that means they laid down their arms. No, it was the temp what's the temptation of a soldier when he's occupying a foreign country to violently take whatever he wants women, possessions, money, property, housing, clothing. Do violence to no man, neither accuse any falsely. Don't make any false accusations about these people just because you're carrying the swords and the spears and be content with your wages, which means don't try to extract more from the populace because you don't think the Roman government's paying you enough. Enough of that. What I, what I want from Luke 3 is for you to see that John the Baptist's ministry was so practical. And so the conclusion of the Old Testament, the angel to Zacharias, is that John the Baptist would be preaching about family relationships. And today, I want to teach you, I want to press you to spend greater effort and diligence and to commit yourselves to your relationships because the Lord expects that of us. I want us to be a people prepared for the Lord because I want the Lord to come and inhabit this church. I want the Lord to come and walk with each one of you and with me. And this is how we become a people prepared for the Lord is to get right in our relationships. 2 Timothy chapter 3, please. 2 Timothy chapter 3. Jesus said that John the Baptist was the greatest, born of women. But he that is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Let me just, this is just a rabbit. Let me explain that to you. John the Baptist was the greatest preacher. He only had one purpose. He lived out there in the middle of nowhere. He was a wild man. He wasn't afraid of anyone. He had nothing. He ate locusts and wild honey and had a leather girdle for his clothing. He was the greatest. But when it comes to knowledge of the new covenant, every one of you in here knows more than John the Baptist. 
He's the least in the kingdom of heaven because he had no understanding except all I know is I'm the voice of one crying in the wilderness that there's one coming behind me. Period. That's all he knew. But I want to tell you something. He had a pretty simple message, but he gave it boldly, and he wasn't afraid of anyone, and he had his head chopped off for it. But I want to comfort all of you by telling you that the least in this congregation is greater than John the Baptist because you know more about the Lord Jesus Christ. After he pointed out Jesus Christ and baptized him, his understanding didn't increase. You know what he asked when he was even in prison. Are you the one that was supposed to come, or should we look for another? He had one purpose, and he did it. He prepared a people for the Lord. Can we be just a little bit dedicated to what the Lord's called us to do? Second Timothy chapter 3, verse 1, This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come. I've preached this to you so many times, I hope you know it as well as I do. Perilous times of the last days are then described as men being lovers of their own selves. Selfishness. You know, our nation wants to call it self-love and self-esteem and self-respect, but guess what word they don't use? Selfishness. Self-love, self-esteem is just euphemisms for selfishness. Men shall be lovers of their own selves. It is fun. I can prove the inspiration of the Bible to the satisfaction of my soul with that verse. It says that in the last days, perilous times would come that men would be lovers of their own selves. I pick up any book on human psychology by Christian or pagan authors, usually they're a mixture of the two, and they're teaching that very thing. That the, that the solution for relationship problems is, a la- is needing more self-esteem or self-respect. Jesus said the solution for relationship problems is to love others as much as you already love yourself. Amen. Covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents. There would be a breakdown in the family in the perilous times of the last days. That's what I want you to see from 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 2. Now I want you to turn to Isaiah chapter 3, please. Isaiah chapter 3. The perilous times of the last days are not having some computer chip embedded in your forehead so that when you buy your groceries, you get down on your knees before some image of Baal and have some scanner or computer pick up that you have submitted to the beast. Oh, help us. The perilous times of the last days are children being disobedient to their parents. And we live in a society where... Is the Word of God been fulfilled to you? Just by looking around, reading the newspaper, watching MTV for 15 seconds? Don't do it unless you need to. Isaiah chapter 3. Here is God's judgment. And brethren, it's come to pass. Verse 1. For behold, the Lord, the Lord of hosts, doth take away from Jerusalem and from Judah the right to free speech. No. Look what he takes away. The Lord, the Lord of hosts, doth take away from Jerusalem and from Judah the stay and the staff, the whole stay of bread and the whole stay of water. The mighty man, 
and the man of war. This is what the Lord takes away from a nation when he judges them. The mighty man, the man of war, the judge, and the prophet, and the prudent, and the ancient, the captain of fifty, and the honorable man, and the counselor, and the cunning artificer, and the eloquent orator. All the good men are taken away in God's judgment, and I will give children to be their princes, and babes shall rule over them. Is that been fulfilled in our country? Isaiah 3, 1 through 5. Look around and think. This is the word of the Lord. Yes, I wish I could preach this to the combined houses of Congress. Isaiah 3, 1 through 5. God has taken away the men. And our government could give some men back by the grace of God if they would change some of our laws and give fathers and mothers authority in the home and put children where they belong. I want you to come down to verse 12. As for my people, children are their oppressors, and women rule over them. O my people, they which lead thee cause thee to err and destroy the way of thy paths. The whole chapter is good, but the whole chapter would take too long, and it would give me about 50 rabbits. So I'm going to leave it for you to read else some other time. It's a great chapter. But the first five verses and then verse 12 tell us that when God judges a nation, he disrupts family order. He takes away the great men and children become oppressors and women become rulers. And those two things cause a nation to go astray. That's what it says. Isaiah chapter 3. The reason I went here is because this is our situation in America. Therefore, we all need to be spending sincere, dedicated efforts to be great fathers, not barely fathers, great fathers, great husbands. And, our, and the women need to be holy women, great women in the earth. I love to write you sisters from time to time and ask you, do you want to be a great woman in the earth? Not just a woman, a great woman. A woman that knows how to love and reverence her husband and to care for him, and to serve him, and to help him, and to honor him, and to lift him up, and to dote on him, and then one that will teach her children to fear authority, and to respect it, and to train them in godliness under her husband, because he should be the primary trainer. Marriages are neglected today. You know, we're pushing, we're getting up, we're working our way up to 60% of marriages that take place end up in divorce. The reason that statistic is a lie is for this. Most people don't get married anymore. Therefore, how can you even record the divorce? Because there wasn't a marriage to begin with to even break. They shack up with this person for a while. When that gets boring, they go shack up with another person. You've had two so-called marriages and a divorce, but none of it's reported. Marriage is falling apart in our nation. We, as the sons of God, like in Genesis chapter 5 and 6 ought to be different from everyone else. The world ought to look at us and see ideal families. Ideal being measured by God's word, not by their standards. But that's a loving husband and wife. Where the husband is happy because he's got a loving and adoring wife. Where the wife is happy because she has a tender, gentle and considerate and loving, not bitter husband. Where the children are happy because they're disciplined and they have laws laid down for them. They don't have to wonder what's expected. And where those laws are enforced. And there's consistency. And where churches can come together and we all love one another. And there's no 
bitterness or animosity or hostility among us, but we all have the care for one another because the things of each other are more important than our own things. This is the testimony of God in a profane world that is rushing to hell. We show it by our families and our relationship in this church. Look at Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2. The women will get together this Wednesday evening again, as they often do on Wednesday nights, one Wednesday night a month, to encourage each other to be great women in the earth. Great women. Mary, Mary Magdalene, Hannah, Elizabeth, Sarah. Sarah was a great woman. She's brought forward in the New Testament, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 6. And she is to be the pattern that women are supposed to follow because she was able to treat her husband and call him Lord, even in her private conversations within her own soul. She called her husband Lord. Titus chapter 2 and verse 5. Well, first, let me start at verse 4. The, the aged women are to teach the younger women to be sober, to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet. That means keep your mouth shut unless it's absolutely necessary for you to open it. That's what it means to be discreet, chaste, keepers at home, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God be not blasphemed. The point I want to get from that is look at what the Apostle Paul sticks in here about women. The word of God can be blasphemed when a woman doesn't behave herself in the scriptural way because everyone sees it. Everyone sees her testiness. Everyone sees her lack of adoration of her husband. Everyone sees her lack of obedience to her husband. And the word of God is blasphemed because they all talk. They all say, can you believe that they call themselves Christians? Look at the way she treats him. She's a biddy. I was nice, so don't tell me I don't have manners in the pulpit. That's what people say. And do you know what we ought to be doing? We ought to be living in such a way that they're all condemned by the marriages that we have and the families that we have and the church that we have. Because they see the love that we have one to another. They see women being wonderful wives. They see men being wonderful husbands and fathers. That the word of God be not blasphemed. I'm here to defend the word of God. And God's honor himself. And I want you to see the importance of it. Our marriages, our families, our church ought to be a shining example to the world. Don't. Don't call yourself a Christian because you don't do heroin, you don't sell porno to children, you don't go to Catholic Mass, you don't have a Buddha in your backyard, you don't watch television, drink beer, wear immodest sweaters, or allow rock music. That is not the evidence of a Christian. The evidence of a Christian is, women, can you submit to your husbands and adore them? Husbands, can you love your wives with gentleness and tenderness without bitterness? Children, can you honor your parents even when they're wrong? Can you lift your parents up and treat them like royalty in your home, wanting to take care of your parents, dote on them, buy them gifts, say nice things to them? Fathers, it means to train them to get involved in their lives, not to come home from work and say, I'm whipped. I don't want to say anything at the supper table. I'm just too tired. Just give me more food. Let me go sit in my easy chair. But when there's a, pro- when there's a problem, you'll go after it. When you see a little bit of a spirit come up that isn't godly, 
You go after it. It takes energy. It takes work. But it's what God's called us to do. And He will bless it. And whether He blesses it or not and rewards us in our homes or not, we ought to do it for the Lord's sake so that the Lord is shown by our living example. Don't, Don't fool yourself that because you're not a Catholic or a Mormon or you don't have a Buddha in your backyard or one of the other examples I gave you that you're righteous. Measure yourself today by relationships. How perfect of a wife are you? And there is only one measurement of a wife. How perfect of a husband are you? And there's only one measurement. It's the Word of God. There has been no improvement on the Word of God. Don't kid yourself. There's only been perverting of the Word of God. This is it. There is no wisdom superior to this. And so this is what women must measure themselves by. If you read 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 6, and it says that Sarah called Abraham Lord in her own thoughts, I didn't make it up. I am not extreme. I am extremely committed to the Bible. That's all I am. I am not extreme. This is the Word of God. And when the Word of God is practiced, there are great benefits that result. And part of it is the praise and glory of the God who gave us this wonderful book to tell us how to live. Here are the problems if you don't want to do this. Turn to Proverbs chapter 10. If the fear of God is not enough to make you want to be a great husband and father, if the fear of God is not enough to make you want to be a great son or a daughter, then let some of these warnings chase you down and arrest your thoughts. Proverbs chapter 10, verse 1, the Proverbs of Solomon. Prior to that, they were David's. A what? You young men, when you read Proverbs 5, 6, and 7, the warnings there about the strange woman and the trouble that it causes, that was not Solomon writing theoretically, that was David writing practically. And telling Solomon what he better avoid in his life. Then it jumps to Solomon. Proverbs 10.1 A wise son maketh a glad father, but a foolish son is the heaviness of his mother. Turn to chapter 17. And verse 21. He that begetteth a fool doeth it to his sorrow, and the father of a fool hath no joy. Verse 25. A foolish son is a grief to his father and bitterness to her that bear him. If you don't want to do what I'm preaching to you this today because you fear the Lord, then do it because you fear the trouble that is going to come into your life. It will come. It's not if it will come, it's when it will come. It will come. And it will be bitterness. That joy that you had in, bring, in giving birth to a child... You, you parents who only have young children, you do not know anything yet. Anyone can raise a young child. It's easier than a puppy. Wait till they're older. When your deficiencies, when your excuses, when your compromises, when your laziness is going to come home and bite you with bitterness in your soul. And I am preaching to no family in here. Don't you dare sit there smugly and think that this morning. Thank you, Lord, for reminding me that that just might be a temptation. That is not what I'm doing this morning. I am preaching to all families because all families ought to be provoked. 
God doesn't bring these events for us just to take care of them and move on. He brings these things to shake us up that we'll consider again the importance of our relationships. This is the pain that's coming. If you do not correct the problems in your marriages, they are going to continue to sour. You cannot hold the dam. If you will not do it God's way, it will continue to sour and it will get worse and worse until the wise man would write about marriage. I find more bitter, bitter. Why is this word bitter? Bitter. That horrible taste, that horrible feeling of bitterness will come from children that shame and disgrace you. And it will come in a marriage where Solomon said, I find more bitter than death, the woman, because he didn't practice godly relationships in his marriages. He should have had one marriage to one godly woman, and he wouldn't have been able to write Ecclesiastes 7, 26. Proverbs chapter 30, what else did the wise man say about, in this particular case, you know, I just mentioned a man who didn't do what he was supposed to, now women who don't do what they're supposed to. Here's what the wise man said as he observed all things that are done under the heavens. Verse 21, for three things, the earth is disquieted and for four, which it cannot bear. There are four things the earth cannot stand to have around. A servant when he reigneth, a fool when he is filled with meat, for an odious woman when she is married, an odious woman when she is married, a contentious woman that is obnoxious and is unwilling to submit and reverence and adore her husband. These are things we need to do or there is going to be pain to pay. And that isn't really my... I have to warn you that because the Bible does say that. I think the fear of the Lord ought to be enough for us to get our relationships proper. Because we want to exalt Him in the earth. We want to be a people prepared for the Lord. We want to be a living testimony of the grace of God and a vindication of His truth. Do you love the truth of God's Word? Are there times you wish you could preach it? Amen. Let's live it. Amen. Let's live it. So that when they look at us, they see that it works because it does work. It's truth. But when they hear us say the truth, but then we live differently and we get different results than what God intended, we disgrace the whole thing. The Bible doesn't have the answer to marriage. Oh, and it does have the answer to marriage. It's got the perfect answers. Look at 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. The perils of not taking heed to our relationships. Our children are going to cause you great bitterness. Your marriage is going to cause you great bitterness. You will not be a people prepared for the Lord. The Lord will not come and dwell with us and bless us. And your prayers will be hindered. And I know you know this verse, but I want you to see it again. 1 Peter 3, 7. Likewise, ye husbands... Dwell with them according to knowledge, giving honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers be not hindered. If our marriage relationship is not taken care of, our prayers will be hindered. If your prayers are hindered, what do you have going for you? Are you praying for the Holy Spirit? Are you praying for strength to defeat sin? Are you praying for your children? Are you praying for other relatives? Are you praying for our church? Are you praying for our pastor? We all go down the tubes because we chose not to have our relationships in a way that pleased the Lord. Even our young people, our children, 
can look around in this assembly, and if I was to give them a piece of paper and say, rank the marriages in this assembly from top to bottom, best to worst, even our children could do it, especially the teenagers. They know what, they're, what they'd like. They're able to hear what's been taught from this pulpit, and because they don't have vested interests to protect, they're able to hear with innocent ears. And so they've accumulated that knowledge, and they're able to look around and see where there is not an adoring, reverencing wife, where there is not a tender, delicate, loving, non-bitter husband. They're able to look and see problems. If our young people can do that, and they can, and they talk about it, if our young people can do that, and I'm not talking about your children, obviously your children see it all. I'm talking about those outside your home that only see you four hours a week. The Lord sees it all. If the children see it, the Lord sees it all. And he does see it all. Isn't that a shame? Look at Proverbs chapter 13. Proverbs chapter 13. You can't hide it. Cannot hide it. It's like the fruit of the Spirit. You can't hide it. If you've got the fruit of the Spirit, it's visible to all. If you don't have the fruit of the Spirit, that's visible to all also. When you're wandering around, a sad sack, unable to talk to other people, isolating yourselves, critical, negative, we all see it. We all know what the problem is. It's a three-letter word. Sin. Our children look and see marriages where there isn't tenderness and happiness, love or affection, time spent with one another, good looks, pleasure with one another. They know there's sin in that marriage. And the older your children get, if you don't get that corrected, you are going to ruin their marriages and they are going to ruin your life. Here's the rule. Proverbs chapter 13 and verse 15, and I've preached this to you before. In a sermon, I believe it was entitled, Playing with Sin. Proverbs 13, 15, good understanding giveth favor. If you'll do things the Bible way, there's going to be favor in your life, but the way of transgressors is hard. The example that I used in that sermon was Lot sitting in the mouth of a cave, staring off into space, two daughters behind him pregnant by himself. His wife gone, his other three daughters gone, their husbands gone, all of his possessions gone, absolutely ruined, staring off into space. Lot, because he played with sin, he compromised with sin. The way of transgressors is hard. And I am your friend, your brother, and I care about you, and I'm preaching this message. You can save yourself from hard times to come by not transgressing in your relationships. The way of transgressors is hard. And I could give examples, but some of them are within this congregation and some of them are in families too close to this congregation. Therefore, I cannot. But there are examples of incredible hardship and pain and bitterness that people have had to endure because they compromised the Word of God when it came to relationships. I want to give some rules to you today. And these rules, don't try to memorize them. Don't, don't do that. If you want to write them down, fine, but I do have them on an outline. Do you know what I want you to leave with today? I can't wait for them to finish so that I can get out of here and love my spouse better. Because I, 
He's right. The word of God is true. I see the warning. I'm convicted. Thank you, Lord. Let me go home and do something about it. And then do it. That's all I want. That's all the Lord wants for today. Is to press you to righteous relationships. The first thing I want to remind you of, and it's so simple. But we live in a society where we're bombarded to think differently. And you have a heart that wants to think differently. So that heart that wants to think differently gets into a conspiracy with our world. And this rule, which is the number one rule, is overthrown. Scripture is the only measure of a godly marriage or family. It's not leave it to beaver. It's not my three sons or the Brady Bunch. But any family that sits and watches that garbage, you will have your defining measurement of a family destroyed. It's in God's Word. It is only by God's Word. Marriage is only by God's Word. There have been no improvements. Women are not treated better today than they were in Bible times. That is an illusion in your weak little mind. If that is true, if because of living in America in the lap of luxury and women basically getting to do whatever they want to makes them happy, why is everyone getting divorced? And why are the ones that aren't divorced so unhappy? We could, I could go on and on. The Bible, right here. This is all. I don't need to go read other books. I don't need to go to seminars. And I don't need to get videotapes because there's been no advancement on this book. None. True. None. We, we say we believe every word of God. Well, let's make sure we're living every word of God as it applies to our relationships. All information that is necessary is in the word of God. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. We learn the verse, but let's not just learn it for its doctrinal value. That the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. Any minister that's called of God to preach, no matter how ignorant... If he can just read the Word of God, read a few verses about wives, and read a few verses about husbands, he has more knowledge and wisdom on marriage than any one of these PhDs holding seminars that are attended by thousands. Convince me otherwise from the Word of God or what's happened in our nation. Has it helped our nation? No way. No way. And I don't care whether it has or hasn't. Results don't mean a thing to me. The Word of God is all that matters. This is the definition of what a wife should be like and what a husband should be like and the training father and obedient children. It's in the Word of God that the man of God may be perfect. Ideas from our examples that we've had as our parents. Well, you say, well, my parent, I don't care about your parents and God doesn't care about your parents. But my parents went to church, therefore they were Christians, therefore their marriage was a pat. No, it wasn't. God's Word is the pattern. That's the first rule of righteous relationships is to measure our relationship by the Word of God and the Word of God only. It's not example. It's not your experiences. But I've had these experiences and I've seen that it doesn't work that way. You don't know anything. If they speak, if they say anything not according to this Word, it is because there is no light in them. Don't trust your experiences. God must have given you some experiences to prove you to whether you'd come back to the Word of God. It's only scripture. The advances of our modern society have not improved on the Bible. They are ever learning, but never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. These little women that don't have enough to do, 
Oh, they love to book their little reservations and they love to get in the plane with their husband that they forced to go to this marriage seminar with them and they go off and listen to some Twinkie. It's always a Twinkie. It is never a man preaching the word of God like John the Baptist. Do you know why? His seminar would dry up in one weekend. One weekend if John the Baptist ever unloaded with the word of God about marriage on women. That little bouncing woman would be back at home where she belongs on her knees addressing her Lord and apologizing and confessing for not having been the virtuous woman that she was supposed to be. There haven't been advancements. And we're so tempted. If, if you go down Haywood Road and you go in that big Christian bookstore there and you say, where's the marriage section? I need help. And they'll send you over here to this section. Wow, there's lots of help here. And you'll start down through all those books and you'll say, wow, look at this cover. That is a good-looking couple. They look so happy. I'll buy this one. How else are you going to measure your books? And so I'll take this one home. And it's got the new 13 rules of how to have a happy marriage. And so you put... But listen, bring your little book to me. And let me help you with your little book. I've read some of those books. And it's it's, it's infuriating. We have the Word of God. My point is, don't get... Satan wants you to read one of those books. And do you know what your soul does? I'm reading this book. Lord, I want to have a better marriage. I'm reading this book. Please help me. And so you feel good about yourself. When the Bible just says, submit to my word. And it's so simple. There's not 13 rules. As we had our little prayer meeting in in the home before we came this morning, I told my my sons that it was going to be on righteous relationships. It included them. It included their relationship with me. And I said, you know, I don't have that much. I have a lot of things here. But I don't have all that many points for you to remember. Because I don't believe it's that we need to know more. I believe it's we need to do what we know. We're afraid of it. We resist it. We we resent it. We don't like it. And we're too proud to do it. And we're too self-righteous to listen to what's being said. It's not you need to know more. It's not going to get another book to tell you more. It's do you want to get down on your knees and say, I love that sermon. I love that warning from Malachi. I love the words of John the Baptist. I love what the Bible says. I don't want my way to be hard in the future, and I want to exemplify Christianity to the world, I am going to change. Lord, help me. Here I come. Husband, look out. Wife, look out. Here I come. We're done for the day. We'll sing and bless the Lord and go home and love one another. That's Christianity. That's what we need to do. It's not complex. The Bible is not outdated. The Bible is not old-fashioned unless you're talking about the fashion of this world. The Bible is eternal truth. It does not change. It doesn't need to change. Don't you let it change. Don't you let someone tell you, well, that's the God of the Old Testament. He doesn't change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Here's another one. (coughs) Satan said, I hear Satan. Well, our families just come to a mutual agreement that this is the way we're going to do it and we're all happy with it. I'm trying to be polite. You have sat down with your little family 
your little mind, your spouse's little mind, and your little itty-bitty children's minds and have decided that you're, you're content with the way it is and that's good enough for you? Thus saith the Lord, it stinks and it's from hell. There is no alternative to the word of God and the way it describes how families are to operate together and how parents are to conduct themselves and how a marriage is to be based. There is no alternative. It doesn't matter about agreement. That is a sick result of our society. We don't need agreement. We need God's word. And that enforced in the proper order of authority. It doesn't matter whether you agree that you're going to do things differently. Well, my husband and I, we, or my wife and I, or our kids and we, we've just worked out this is the way that works best for us. There is only one way, and it's God's way. Let me tell you something else. Oh, boy. God chose the offices. The first rule. Don't remember these. I don't, don't Just go home and do them. I don't want to start doing that first, second, 15th, 83rd. You don't need that. What you need is, I want to go home. I want to be a man of God in the earth. I want to be a man of God. I want to be a man that would have gone to the Jordan River, would have led his family to the Jordan River, and would have addressed, heard John the Baptist preach, would have heard that he owed some, some more reverence to his father, would have been convicted about it, would have got down in that water and been baptized when they'd never seen a baptism before in their lives. I want to be a man of God like that. I want to be a man of God like in Genesis chapter 4 where it says in the days of Enos men began to call upon the name of the Lord. I'm going to go home and I'm going to love my wife and I'm going to love her tenderly. I'm going to be gentle instead of harsh. I'm going to be forgiving instead of bitter. I'm going to be thoughtful instead of critical. And the wife goes home, I'm going to adore my husband. I'm going to apologize for the way I've been. I'm going to dote on him. I'm going to make him more important in my life. I'm going to plan to take something to him at work tomorrow. Surprise. <laughs> He'll need CPR. That is godliness. Amen. It's not teaching you 17 things to memorize. Lord, you have to help me because I can't convict hearts. God chose the offices. Do you know how sovereignly God chose the offices? Were you asked how you thought this world ought to be set up before you came into it? Or did you just arrive about seven pounds, six ounces, totally helpless and dependent upon two parents? Amen. And so all of a sudden you're introduced to this, this strange, cruel world with lots of bright lights and people running around in white coats. And in this world, there's parents and there's you and they're smart and they're big and they're powerful and they're selfish. And I'm just this little tiny baby. Those offices were chosen by God. So the little baby grows up and finds out that, where did this idea of marriage come from? Was it cavemen, bored one day, sitting around a campfire? Hey, have you ever thought of marriage? What is it? One man, one woman, rings, three candles. No, it's none of that. And I'm not trying to entertain you. I want you to think, where did the offices come from? It's it, God. Absolutely God. He created a man. He created a woman. It's the last time he created them that way. From then on, we come into the world, seven pounds, six ounces, helpless little thing with big monsters around us. One man, one woman, and said, this is the way it's supposed to be. This woman was made to help the man. 
That means your goal in life, women, is to make your husband happy. This man is to take care of this woman. And together, they're to worship me as being heirs together of the grace of life, companions for life. One man, one woman. God ordained it. God ordained churches for us to come together and to have mutual encouragement and to exhort one another to live godly and sober lives until Jesus comes. God ordained the offices. The fact that he took the husband and put him over the wife, made the husband first, made the wife second, made the wife to serve the husband, made the husband to take care of the wife, etc., etc. God did all of that. We don't bark against it. We don't try to modify it. We don't complain about it. We don't think that there might be a better way. We say, that is infinite wisdom. Let's do it. Amen. One other thing, and then we'll be done for this morning. God chose the people in the offices. Were you asked what kind of parents you want? I've asked you this question before. Were you asked what kind of parents you wanted when you were born? Were you asked what genetic package would you like? And then have A through D with E being none of the above. What genetic package would you like? Think, think about it. It is incredibly humbling. And what it does is it sets up God and his word. Did you realize you were not asked about your parents? And do you realize the genetic contribution of your parents and the practical contribution of the way your parents lived influences your life enormously? Enormously. And you were not asked. You were not asked what generation to be born into, what country to be born into, whether your father would love you or your mother was a coke crack addict. None of it. God put those people in the office. Those children that were born to you, were you asked what kind of package you want to come out? No, that's why we pray and trust the Lord until we see that little baby and we start grabbing toes as fast as we can and counting them to make sure there's five on each foot and five fingers and we're twisting noses and slapping butts to make sure they'll cry and doing all those things because it is the sovereign choice of God. And we don't see its temperament yet, but it doesn't take very long. And we say, where did that come from? Do we have some grandparents in our line? I have, you know, mothers usually know this before they're born. The thing's running around a racetrack inside, and they're saying, listen, I'm so peaceful, and you're so peaceful. What's going on down here? Who puts that package together? God God does, and he doesn't ask us. Don't tell me about I can't love them in either direction. Don't tell me my father was an abusive father. Honor thy father. He is in an office that God created, and he is the one that God created for you. You don't like your mother? Honor thy mother. You don't like your mother-in-law. That works better. You got her from the Lord, too, and the office. Amen. I see Moses bowing before Jethro, and then I see him kissing his neck and hugging him in front of all of Israel. What color was Jethro? Black. Who was Moses? The leader of three million people. But he humbled himself before his father-in-law and did obeisance to him and treated him very warmly and respectfully and kissed him. This is the word of the Lord to all of us. 
God's word is absolutely true, and it's not to be modified in any way, shape, or form in any, by anyone at any time when it comes to relationships. Two, God chose the offices of husband, father, wife, mother, children, and brethren. God chose the persons that are in the office. That, to me, is overwhelming. He is infinitely wise. The parents that he gave you, and sometimes when they get under your skin and irritate you, he knew that when he chose them. And it doesn't mean a thing, and it's no excuse for you to try to avoid your responsibilities toward them. How about in a church? I've taught you this before. It's 1 Corinthians twelve eighteen. Why aren't we all clones? Because that wouldn't do anything for us. We're all different, and we need to learn how to love each other with all their differences. And do you know what the Bible says? We're to esteem the things of others more important than our own things. That's a rule of relationships. I'll get to it. I hear Satan again. But I chose my spouse. But I chose my spouse. And because I made a bad choice and wish I hadn't made the one that I did, therefore I don't owe them everything. I defy you to prove that. I'll show you that your spouse was chosen by God. Because in all the providential timing factors that result in a marriage, which are innumerable, when you would be born, where you would be born, how you would be brought up, where you would be taken when you were 17 years old and very vulnerable, and you would see that other, whatever age it would be, and you see that other person, all of those factors that when you met eyes, there was attraction. When you asked each other about things that you were interested in, there was compatibility. All those factors, you were most vulnerable, they were most vulnerable. They, you had mutual interest in each other that fueled further inquiries about each other, which you don't do with anyone else hardly, and you end up in marriage. It's the providence of God. Amen. He was leading and directing you. Everyone knows that before they get married because they all pray for it. Everyone that's happy knows that after marriage because they thank the Lord for it. Therefore, the problem is sin, not that God didn't do his work in some marriage. It's God's person. God, out of six billion people, chose a certain person for you. Your little choice has nothing to do with it. And if you want to make your little choice important, that's history. God doesn't care. Here's how you're supposed to treat your spouse. So let's not go there. Let's go here. Righteous relationships. Lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. I'm a father. I'm a son. I'm a husband. I'm a brother. All of this applies to me as much as it does to you. By the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, can we have righteous relationships and serve him until he comes? God help us.